If you've got your Bibles there, um, open them up. We're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 5 to 9a. This reading from, was from the prophet Isaiah, who 700 years before Jesus spoke of the genuine religion that God desires. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. Our second reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 to chapter 3, verse 12. Most recently, we saw Jesus point out that the most pressing need in our world and in each of our lives is to be healed from sin. And he announced that he comes to offer the forgiveness that we all need. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment, Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, 
Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathah, the high priest, he entered the house of God, ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he could heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea and the regions around the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell about him. Thanks, Mel. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Matt, as many of you just showed that you know that. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's a great pleasure to be able to open this book uh, with you this morning, this part of Mark's Gospel. Uh, I want to start this morning by getting you to have a look up on the screen there. There's a bunch of famous people. Um, Hopefully you recognise some of them. What I want you to do is think about what are these people, they all have one thing in common. Maybe have a chat, particularly if you don't know who's up there, have a chat to the person next to you, that way you won't look half as dull. Um, And think about what is it that they have in common? All right, what do we, uh, what are, what are we come up with? Have we worked out what they've got in common? Has anyone worked out what they've got in common? They've all been vilified. Yeah, they're all part of a thing we call cancel culture. It's a, I suppose it's a new term. It's when you might put out something... Uh, You might say something, you might do something that others don't agree with and therefore you get cancelled. It's become part of our language today, the cancel culture. So if we have a look at the the people up there, 
Obviously, the first one there is, is Margaret Court. She's been in the news in the last couple of days, but for the last few years, a great Australian tennis player who has spoken out against same-sex marriage and a number of other things like that. And, of course, now they want to stop calling a tennis court after her. Uh, Kevin Hart, in 2018, there were some tweets that resurfaced that had a, a homophobic edge to them, and he was asked not to host the Oscars that year. The next lady there, did people get her? I put her there mainly for the Church of Five Crew, so that's okay. If you watch the Mandalorian series, who watched that? Brilliant. She was in the first two seasons. She got cancelled out of the third season because she put some stuff up there on social media about mask wearing. She put it up there about voter rigging and then most recently about some transgender issues and preferred pronouns and people didn't agree with that. Down the bottom there, of course, we've got J.K. Rowling who's been quite outspoken around transgender issues and people have called to ban her books, the Harry Potter books. And lastly, of course, we all know the, the infamous Oprah interview, which resulted in Harry and Meghan uh, having podcasts cancelled and having a number of TV deals put on hold. Now, what have we seen so far in Mark's Gospel? Well, we've seen Jesus come and he has said, he said, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Bang! But he didn't just say it. He then went on to carry out a number of actions. He drove out demons. He healed someone with leprosy. And then he did that remarkable healing in front of everybody where a paralysed man got up, picked up his mat and stormed out of the place. It would have been amazing to be there. And in fact, it has been amazing for the crowds because what we see is Jesus has garnered so much support that in verse 12 of chapter 2, the people as a bunch together said, we have never seen anything like this. His public support is massive. But if we think cancel culture is something new, we need to think again because what we will see today is that Jesus will get embroiled in a number of scandals and he does not shy away from it. In fact, he goes headlong into it and as a result, the, the, the court of public opinion, the tide starts to turn against him. So he gets involved in three scandals, a scandal about sinners, a scandal about the Sabbath, and then a scandal about fasting. And what I want to do today is just quickly look at each of those scandals, and I want to look at what are the, what, what's a lesson we can take from that, and then lastly, we'll, we'll have one takeaway or one challenge for us. So it's great if you can have your, your Bibles open, although I will have sympathy on you, I, I am putting the verses up there, but the first controversy has to do with Jesus' connection with sinners. So Jesus is wandering along and he sees this fellow Levi sitting at the table doing what tax collectors do, collecting money. Jesus stops, says, follow me. Levi jumps up and follows him. It's that simple. <laughs> it's not a hard story, that one. Now, Dave told us quite in a level of depth last week that pretty much tax collectors were despised. 
they were traitors to their people. They collected money for the Romans and they lined their own pockets with it. So they were hated not just by the religious leaders but by everybody. And Levi was one of those people who was despised. Now the stories we're going to look at today, both Matthew, Mark and Luke, all of those Gospels, they retell these stories. And they tell them pretty much the same. There are a few slight differences with them and where they are different, I might try and point it out because it might, uh, it might be important for us to know that. Now the first difference I want to point out is in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew doesn't use the name Levi for the tax collector. Matthew uses the name Matthew. And we have good reason to believe that Levi and Matthew are one and the same person. And we also have good reason to believe that that Matthew, who was a tax collector, is also Matthew the Evangelist who wrote Matthew's Gospel. So that's worth us just noting and maybe putting to the side and we'll pick that up a bit later on. So in this episode, as I said, Jesus calls Levi, follow me, he jumps up and follows him. But before he goes there, he decides he's going to throw a big party. He's leaving that old life behind and he's going to say farewell to his friends. In Luke's Gospel, Luke calls it a great feast. And I reckon like any new Christian, Levi's going, mate, you've got to meet this guy who's changed my life. I'm going to follow him. I want you to hear what he's got to say. And so he invites all these friends and they have a big shindig. But not everyone is pleased, are they? Verse, six, verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Earlier on in this chapter, they were thinking negative things about Jesus. Ten verses on, they're speaking those negative things. And we're going to see in the next chapter, they ramp it up even further. But that's where they're at at the moment. What's Jesus' response? Well, pretty simply, in verse 17, Jesus says, I am the great physician. And the sickness I've come to cure is sin. And if that's the case, then why wouldn't I hang out with a bunch of people where sin is so obvious in their life? It makes sense, doesn't it? So that's the first controversy. What's a lesson we can learn from that? What do I think God is trying to say to us today through that scandal? Well, I reckon the first one is that no one is beyond hope. If you are sitting there today feeling that your sin is far too great for Jesus to want you in his family, or you are too far gone, or you have committed that sin too many times, Jesus is saying, come, follow me. You see, the Pharisees wanted people to clean themselves up with a bunch of rules, and we're going to see that more closely in a moment. And they're saying, clean yourself up, and then and only then might you be able to come before God? Well, Jesus turns that right around. He calls Levi to follow him while Levi's in the midst of his sin. 
He doesn't say, hey, well, Levi, you need to do these three things and then jump up and follow me. He just says, follow me. He's calling him to come as he is and that's what he wants from each one of us today. And obviously, when he calls him to that, he calls him to leave that old life behind. Equally, I I think this story is illustrating the point that it's impossible for any of us to know where someone else's heart is at. Here's Levi in the midst of his sin and he's ready to answer Jesus' call. Jesus says, follow me, and he jumps up and goes. He doesn't say, I've got to do these seven things. He just goes. And let's face it, Levi has a lot to lose. The other disciples who follow Jesus, they leave their boats and their nets. What do they do later on? They go back to their boats and their nets. They can go back to that life. Levi cannot go back to his life as a tax collector if he is going to be a follower of Jesus. He has a lot to lose. He has a lot to gain. What I should say is he's leaving a lot behind. He hasn't got a backup plan. He's got no net to fall back into. Yet he jumps up and he follows. And not everyone in the Gospels responds that way to Jesus, do they? Remember the rich young man. Jesus said, come and follow me. And what does the Bible tell us? He walked away sad because he couldn't. Or partway through the Gospel, Jesus has a whole lot of disciples and the Bible tells us half of them at least turned back and no longer followed him. And even now, we're seeing so many people are following Jesus in this story. Yet in the end, who are the ones who are with him? On that night, that last night when he faced the reality of his death, well, Levi was one of them. I want to tell you about this fella up here. His name is Charles Studd. Now, two things you should pick up from that photo. One is he lived a while ago. But secondly, he was a cricketer. Now, Charles Studd, his first-class bowling average was better than Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne. That's how good a cricketer he was. But he only ever played two tests for England. He played in the first Ashes Test in 1884. And in fact, his name is inscribed on the Ashes urn. He was also very rich. He inherited the equivalent of seven million Australian dollars. And uh, late in the year of 1884, his brother George became unwell. And Charles loved his brother George and he was hit between the eyes when he saw that his brother was going to die. And he was faced with that reality that we all face, once in our lives at least, where we go, what is life all about? And Charles Studd said, at that time I knew cricket wouldn't last, I knew honour wouldn't last, I knew nothing in this world would last. It was only what you would do for eternity that would last. So what did he do? He gave up cricket. He gave away $7 million and he went to China and he went, eventually went to Congo where he spread the good news over there and he died as a missionary in Congo. Now, why am I telling you about this fella? Well, I think, A, he's pretty inspirational. But secondly, he, he, he had a quote that I reckon sums up what Jesus is doing here when, when he says, I've come to call sinners. This is a quote that Charles Studd had. 
He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I reckon, particularly as a new Christian, but maybe as a long-term Christian, I'll tell you if I ever get there, it's easy to think, you know what, I'm just going to hang in the confines and the safety of church and God's people. They can be a little bit offensive at times, but they're nowhere near as hard as the world. But brothers and sisters, we've been given the Great Commission. Our job is to take the good news to the world. Jesus, the the great physician, was doing this. He wanted to be with people who knew they were sinners in need of a saviour. I used to have uh, that saying up on my office wall when, before I was a pastor here, I was program director at a drug rehab here on the Central Coast. And that was on the wall to remind me why I was doing what I was doing. And I must say, in my three years at that place, never have I seen so many people come to a saving knowledge of the gospel. And that's obviously God's mercy and God's grace, absolutely. But it's also the fact that when you lob up in a drug rehab, you can't escape the fact that you are a sinner in need of saving. Now, you might be here today and you lament over your friends and your family not yet knowing Jesus. And you may wonder, will they ever be saved? They seem so far from God. I can't answer that question for you today. But what I do know and and what I've witnessed is that God works on lost hearts in amazing ways. I would say never give up, keep praying, keep witnessing, keep believing that God is doing things that you won't ever understand in drawing your loved ones to himself. And I reckon if you ever despair, remember Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the early church, becomes Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. And remember today we see Levi the tax collector becoming Matthew the evangelist and we read his words even unto today, yeah? So what's the second controversy? The second one was around the Sabbath. And here we see Jesus doing two things that in the eyes of the lawmakers they believe it contravened the Sabbath laws. He was picking grain and he was healing on the Sabbath. Now, a quick history lesson, the Sabbath was given by God to God's people before they entered the Promised Land. Uh, You can have a read about it in Deuteronomy 5. And the laws, the Ten Commandments, were given to God's people so that they might live as God's people in that new blessing, that new gift that he'd given them. Now, the, the Sabbath itself was that they were to rest from their labours or rest from their work. And, and it was a, they called it a Sabbath to the Lord, which meant you are to rest in the Lord. Or in the book of Leviticus, they call it a day of holy assembly. So literally it's this idea where you just spend a day where you rest from your labour and you get to pray and worship. 
and gather. But the Pharisees turn this blessing into a a bunch of rule-keeping, love-limiting practices. In their distorted view, the religious leaders in the Old Testament, they went, oh, if we're meant to rest from our work, then we should define what work is, right? They must have been psychologists. We always want to define something. And so the Talmud, very early Jewish writings, went, okay, we're going to work out what rest is so that we make sure, we're going to work out what work is so we make sure we don't contravene the law. And they came up with 39 activities that are seen as work and they are expressly forbidden on the Sabbath. And those 39 activities are still held to by orthodox members of the Jewish faith. So rather than think about how do we best rest in the Lord? What will bring us closer to God? They went, oh, let's define what work is and we won't do those things. Rather than what will we do? I am not here to have a go at the Jewish faith. I grew up in a faith that had a strong works base to it, which was all about what do I need to do to be right before God. And I've got to say, it is a hard journey because no matter how hard you try, you never make it. Now and then you get close and you feel proud of yourself and then you realise you're proud and you've sinned again and so you fall back, yeah? It's pretty self-defeating. What's Jesus' response to all this man-made, this this man-directed, this man-led, this this man-empowered effort? Well, in verses 27... To 28 of chapter 2 he said the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath and so the son of man is lord even of the sabbath so jesus is saying that the sabbath was an institution that was meant for humans it was meant for us it was meant for our benefit and he underlines it by saying the son of man who is himself is the lord of all that means He's also Lord of the Sabbath and he's the one who'll say what's right to do on the Sabbath. Not a bunch of lawmakers. And he says, I'll show you what to do on the Sabbath. What has precedence? Human need has precedence over rule keeping. Hunger, healing has precedence over following a bunch of rules. And how does this play out? Well, let's have a look at chapter 3, the first two verses. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. It's interesting, isn't it? Their hearts are so hard. They know he can heal. Did you notice that? They know he can heal. But rather than see it as a reason to give God honour and praise and to be joyful... They go, can we catch him out? Let's see if he does it on the wrong day. That's how hard their hearts are. They they couldn't see him freeing the the chains that this man had worn perhaps all his life with a shriveled hand. All they saw was someone breaking a bunch of rules. No wonder in verse 5 it says Jesus was angry at them and he was angry at their stubborn hearts. 
What's the effect for them of Jesus performing this miracle, of Jesus showing love for a poor, afflicted man? Well, verse 6 tells us then the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Two massive developments, eh? They went from thinking about Jesus doing the wrong thing to speaking about it to 10 verses later, let's plot, let's kill him. And the other development, who's doing the plotting? You have the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now the Pharisees, the super religious dudes. The Herodians, they're the followers of King Herod. King Herod was a puppet king put in by the Romans to placate the Jewish people. He was called the king of the Jews, but he was a puppet king. The Herodians and the Pharisees were polar opposites on the political spectrum. They're like Labour and Liberal. They're like Republican and Democrat if you're in the US. Yet here, they become best mates over who they're going to silence. Talk about cancel culture. They're ready to kill Jesus for what he's done here. So let's have a a look at the last scandal that Jesus gets involved in, and that is a scandal around fasting. Let's go back to chapter 2 and verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Let's notice there that Jesus here is questioned. Who's he questioned by? Who's he questioned by? Is it, the ta- is it the Pharisees? Is it the lawmakers? No, it's some people. Let's remember before this, Jesus has eaten with a bunch of tax collectors who were hated. It's not just the lawmakers who the tide is turning against Jesus. It's also the ordinary, everyday folk who are starting to question what he's doing. Now, the fasting, again, let's just think about. In the Old Testament, the Mosaic law put down that one must fast one day a year, Yom Kippur, the great day of atonement in Leviticus, where the people as a whole repented of their sins and they fasted. That was what God called for. And then also in parts of the Old Testament, we do see people like David fast and a number of other people, but often their fasting is hooked into prayer and repentance and it's often an expression of remorse. It's it's an expression of um, grief and it's to bring themselves closer to God and feel his love. And then in the New Testament, there's examples of fasting. Hey, Jesus fasted. Uh, the disciples fast before they have to uh, cast out demons. Uh, early church, they do a bit of fasting before they make a big decision. So fasting happens, but there's a point and a purpose in it. What about the Pharisees? Well, guess what? The Pharisees fast religiously two days a week. What a surprise. Exactly like the Sabbath. What they have done is they've got this religious zeal based on their own efforts. 
So what's Jesus' response to the question about why aren't your disciples fasting? Why don't you fast? Well, he says two things. Firstly, he says, I'm the bridegroom. I am the bridegroom. I have come. This is a time of celebration. It's not a time of mourning. But notice there, he says, there will be a time where the bridegroom is taken from them. He's alluding to the fact that he will be taken and he will be killed. And then there will be a time of appropriate mourning and fasting. But it's not now. What else does Jesus say in response to the question about fasting? Well, verse 22 he speaks of these wineskins and he talks about if you've got an old wineskin and you pour new wine into it, that old wineskin will crack open and you'll lose the wineskin and the wine. What's he going on about there? I think what he's saying here is, is what I have come to fulfil, you can't stick it in old traditions. You can't stick it in old rules You can't paper over the cracks of stuff that isn't working. That the gospel is something that's that's radically new, drastically different, and you can't match it up with the old. It's not a spoiler put a new spoiler put on an old Tirana. I won't say that at Church of Five. (laughs) That's what the gospel is all about. And that's why the gospel is so hard for so many people to actually wrap their head around. Because it says you have to get rid of all the old. All that old rubbish of what you can do to be right. It'll never work. Millions of people are still trying to cling to that old law. The Mosaic law. And then there's millions of people who've made up new laws to be right with God. And Jesus had no interest in rebuilding that. He had no interest. He died on the cross so he could perfectly fulfil the law. And then he didn't institute a bunch of new laws. He said, no, there's a new covenant through my blood and it's called grace. God's unmerited love for people who don't deserve it. I am the only way to God. I reckon, what do we see exemplified here? What what, what can we take from this? I reckon grace is greater than legalism. Grace is so much better than legalism. We see that with the, the Pharisees and the crowds. They were unable or unwilling to accept God's grace. And so if you don't accept God's grace, then what are you left with? Well, you're left with legalism or, or merit-based judgment. Do you get an A, a B, a C, a D, or do you get an F? And in order to live in a legalistic way, you create more and more and more and more and more rules. That's why the Sabbath had become so rule-laden. It was something for God's people to know him, to come closer to him. And in the end, it became a barrier to them knowing him. People are are then fooled into thinking, well, I can fix myself. I I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'll be right. I was um, on a uh, blog the other day of an Orthodox Jewish site. And the question was asked, if I already have the TV on 
and the Sabbath kicks over, then can I watch the TV on the Sabbath? And the answer from a rabbi was that you are not breaking the Sabbath law, but you are breaking the spirit of the Sabbath. We split hairs when we start to go down the road of legalism. As I said, I grew up in a religious tradition where it was rule laden. And I remember my dear great aunt, who's now passed away and became a Christian just before she died. So she's at home with Monica now. They'd get along well. And I remember my great aunt, when we went to church, we were told you had to wait one hour before you went to communion. If you'd eaten, you couldn't go to communion. So my great aunt would sit at the back and she would eat milk bottle lollies and give us one every now and then when my mum wasn't looking. And my great aunt believed in that rule so much that she would get to the back of the communion line. She was always last in the hope that an hour would pass before she made it to the front of the communion line. That's sad, isn't it? When we make up these rules and say, that will make you right with God or not. Jesus wasn't interested in that. Or maybe you're a person here today who you've set your own rules. You've tried to control things yourself. You practice what I'd call a little L, legalism. You hope that you'll earn God's favour by by dealing with your issues and your, your problems better. Yet you'll find yourself back at the same point again and again and again, having failed again and again. Can I invite you to consider Celebrate Recovery? It's something I've been involved in for 10 years. There's postcards on your seat there. We're going to kick off our information night in a couple of Tuesdays' time. Principle one in Celebrate Recovery says, I realise I am not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong, wrong thing and that without God, my life is unmanageable. In Celebrate Recovery, we call that the reality step. I need to accept the reality that I am not God and I cannot control things. And God is God. And the beginning of change or change happens when I accept what Christ has done on the cross for me and the forgiveness that he has won. Then he will work change in my life, not the other way around. The final learning I want to draw our attention to this morning is we all need to beware of hypocrisy. Some of us forget perhaps just how bad we were before we met Jesus. I remember when I expressed frustration at my family of origins, hard-heartedness towards the gospel, that it was a loving Christian brother in this community who reminded me of how many years it took God to thaw my hard heart and to accept the grace and mercy on offer. What I was facing was the same as the Pharisees, hypocrisy. We are in trouble, brothers and sisters, spiritually, when we think we've reached a place where we're better or we're more righteous than others because we've done a bunch of stuff. We run a Bible study. We lead music. We set up chairs. No one else sees it. If we start thinking that makes us special, then we are in trouble. 
I love my brother Darren. I've heard him say it many times. We are simply one beggar showing another beggar where to find something to eat. That's as good as it gets here at church. If Jesus is a great physician and the sickness he came to heal us sin and we are to be his witnesses in this world, then our, our church and our, our conduct in the community should be likewise. We should welcome people from all walks of life. We should not be judging their sin. We should be loving them like Jesus did. We should be helping them hear God calling them forward, just like he called Levi. Forward to a new life, a forgiven life, a life where then repentance and and transformation happens. Well, I started this morning by putting up several pictures of people who experienced cancel culture. And as we've seen in Jesus' experience, it's nothing new, eh? But I reckon there's two big differences between what these people have experienced in cancel culture and what Jesus experiences. These people have lost Netflix shows. They haven't had podcasts go to air. One of them may lose a tennis court being named after them. But for Jesus, ultimately, cancel culture leads him to the cross. It leads him to die as an innocent man. That's a big difference. And the second difference is Jesus openly invited this opposition. And we see it in the final verses of today where healing others had made him so popular that he says to his disciples, chuck me in a boat so I get a bit of distance from them. Because their heart need is to hear the gospel. It's not to be healed from a shriveled hand. And equally, when when he drives out the demons and they say, you're the son of God, he silences them. Why? Well, because them saying that and others hearing it might derail his mission of ensuring that people not only heard the gospel, but they grasped its true meaning. That is what he needed. That is what the people needed. They needed to know that Jesus had bought this this new wine, this new covenant of grace, and that religious and rule-keeping was never going to be able to hold it. And they had to let go of that. In our dark world, and I reckon the Central Coast is a pretty dark place, where we have worrying rates of domestic violence, child protection, relationship breakdown addiction issues. This, this covenant of grace must burst forth. And as Christ's witness, it's through us that it must burst. But if we aren't out there talking to people who need to hear this, then who will? I once heard it said, it's only good news if you hear it. I would pray that as a church we have the same heart inclination as that of our Heavenly Father. We heard Isaiah read before where where God said more than fasting, more than rule keeping, what I want you to do is I want you to loose the chains of injustice. I want you to share your food with the hungry. 
I want you to provide shelter to the needy. And I reckon for those of us who stand on the other side of the cross and intimately know grace, it is through those relationships of love as we do those things for people that we are called to give the most precious gift of all. And that is to share the gospel of what Jesus has done with a world that needs to hear it. Because we know in Mark's gospel, that's why Jesus came. But equally, that's why he sends each one of us. How about I pray? Father God, I thank you that in Jesus' coming, a new wine came. Because the religious rules and laws, Father, we can never maintain them. But we can come to the foot of the cross. And we can come and experience your grace and your love. And Father, as we do so, I pray you change our hearts. Father, have us more outward looking so that we may tell this wonderful thing to others in our community. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.